Today we're going to do all of chapter 10 and a little bit of chapter 11. So if you flip to 10.1, we'll start there. For the law, since it has only since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Now that's, a, that's an interesting take on the law. First of all, it says that the goal of both the law and the, quote, good things to come is to make perfect those who draw near. That word perfect is that same one we've seen throughout Hebrews that means basically reaching the goal. So this is saying the law is unable to get us all the way to the goal, which, as we've seen, the goal is to dwell together with God, to be his people, and to live always in his promised blessings. Well, the reason given in this verse is that the shadow is o- the law is only a shadow of the reality that is to come, which I find interesting as well, because at the time this was written, Christ had already come and left. So what is he talking about, the good things to come? When, when you put the halves of the verse together, you see that there are good things to come that will achieve God's goal and purpose for us. So this ties in with the whole idea expressed throughout Hebrews that the Christian life is an ongoing process. Yes, we're saved the moment we believe, but that just opens the door to a lifelong learning and growing and maturing process that's enabled by the Holy Spirit and salted with blessings and the hope of even more good things to come. So then the writer picks up the thread of the sacrifices, the mechanism used by the law to operate in the lives of the people. Verse 2 and 3. Otherwise, would the sacrifices not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So that's saying if the sacrifices had been effective in achieving God's goal... They would have removed from us our consciousness of our sin. Well, the Old Testament clearly says that the sacrifices under the law resulted in God's forgiveness of the sins, right? And we know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross certainly resulted in God's forgiveness of our sins. And we've already learned that the difference between the old law and sacrifices and the new new sacrifice of Christ is that the old ones never changed the inner man. Whereas Christ's sacrifice completely transforms the inner man through the working of the Holy Spirit. But even under Christ, we're still conscious of our sins, aren't we? This is such a great object lesson for a Christian in these two verses because what it's saying is that we should not continue to be conscious of our sins once they've been cleaned. We have been given a gift of walking free from guilt and shame. And if God no longer remembers our sins, why should we dwell on them? There's no good reason to keep looking backward. It's just a way to let Satan keep us distracted and ineffective. So does that mean we wouldn't be aware of any new or ongoing sin? Well, of course not. Just the very fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us would create huge red alerts and discomfort any time we allow sin into our lives. Sin and the Holy Spirit do not dwell together comfortably. 
if we are sanctified, set apart, and holy, if we walk with God continually, sin will find a scarce foothold in our lives. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to reveal even our hidden sins to us and enable us to lay them down at the foot of the cross. Verse 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law could only make man aware of the prescribed sins, you know, kind of the listed ones, the murder, the adultery, the covetousness, all that stuff. The law was not living and active. It did not dwell within man. It was not able to discern his inmost thoughts. And although the sins were forgiven under the law, the law was helpless to remove the sin from our lives. No wonder the sacrifices of the law are described as only a poor, ineffective shadow of the things to come. The good things to come that they're talking about are the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives in ways far more powerful and effective than ever could have been imagined under the law. Verse 5 through 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Well, that's a quote from Psalm 40. And it's not a psalm that gives us any of the normal indications that it's a messianic psalm. The only way we know it's messianic is because of this reference here in Hebrews. Psalm 40. Mm -hmm. If you read the psalm, it's clearly a psalm in which David the man is speaking. But right in the middle are these couple of little verses that, if you take them by themselves do appear to be Christ talking. And here's Psalm, I've, I've put it in your scripture references, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That first bit about my ears you have pierced is kind of interesting, isn't it? Scholars have a really tough time interpreting that particular phrase. The word that they're translating is kara, and it means to bore or open, to dig or open, and can even mean make a banquet. It it could mean to pierce an ear like the NIV translated. And in, this, in, in that case, I would think it's recalling Exodus 21.6, which is a law that says if a man is a slave and either works out his t period of indenture or buys his freedom or whatever, at the moment that he can become free, he has a choice. And he can choose to go free in which case he has to leave his wife and children that he may have in slavery. Or he can choose to remain a slave forever in order to stay with his family. And if he decides to remain a slave and stay with his family, he is held against a doorpost and his owner drills a piercing through his ear with an awl. 
And I think that is a beautiful picture of Christ's choice with us to become part of our family, to stay with us. And I can see why the NIV chose that translation of that word, if that's indeed Christ speaking in this psalm. Other translations in your Bibles may say, my ears you have digged out or opened. And that could make sense also in this psalm, but only if you stick with the idea that it's David talking as opposed to Christ. Because what David would be saying is that he finally understands. He's saying, I finally get it, Lord. You got through. You know, I understand you don't want animal sacrifices. He's saying that the Lord finally opened his ears and has gotten through to him that holiness isn't about killing animals. Now, that translation doesn't make as much sense if you look at those, that part of the psalm as being the words of Christ like the writer of Hebrews is doing. And in fact, if you notice, the psalm as it's quoted by the writer of Hebrews doesn't match either of those translations. And that's because he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou didst not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written concerning me. I desired to do thy will, O oh my God. Well, that gives an even clearer picture pointing to Christ. It says God did not want animal sacrifices, but instead provided Christ with a human incarnate body to be given in sacrifice for us. Wow. And verse 7 there records Christ's response. We know Christ came to do God's will, to fulfill God's purpose for man. But what's this reference that says it's written about him in the volume of the book? Where, where does scripture record that? I did a search on scripture. You will not find the phrase your will or thy will in the Bible anywhere except a handful of times. It's in this psalm. It's in one other psalm, Psalm 143. It's in the Lord's Prayer where he says, Thy will be done. And it's in his Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where again he said, Thy will be done. That's it. Other than these passages in Hebrews and Psalm 40, that's the only place where it says, Thy will be done. So where did Christ say it? Well, I think the secret is in Revelation. Look in Revelation 4, verse 9 through 514. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is the only other place in scripture that phrase appears. And look what happens right after that it says your will. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Could this be the volume that's being referred to in the Psalms? And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth 
or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I, John, began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And Christ proceeds to open the document. And as it opens, the judgments fall, the final judgments fall on the earth. And this document, as we studied in Revelation, functions as the last will and testament of God. It is the writing of his will. It's his will that Christ is enacting, that he is doing. And I think it's to this document that Christ is referring in Psalm 40 when he says, I have come, in the scroll, in the document, it's written about me. I have come to do your will. The writer of Hebrews, having quoted this text from Psalm 40, goes on to explain it in verses 8 through 10. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He, sets a, he Christ, sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Christ, by fulfilling God's will, finally achieves God's purpose, the goal that the law fell short of. Christ was able to make us holy, and therefore the law and its system of ineffective sacrifices was set aside. Verses 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, Jesus waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice that the priests stand and continually repeat their work. There are no chairs in the tabernacle. But Christ completed his work and sat down to await the fulfillment of the Father's own work. And this fulfillment happens during the millennial reign. And when during that reign, all Christ's enemies are going to be brought into subjection to him. But that's another study for another time. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out that Christ has accomplished God's goal by making us holy and acceptable, able to dwell with God. Verse 15 through 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, 
This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where those have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Well, we recognize that prophecy from Jeremiah. We read it last week. And when this time comes for Israel and God puts his laws in their hearts and writes them on their minds, it says he will no longer even remember that they sinned. When does that happen for Israel? During the millennial reign. It's one of the things that's going to be accomplished then. But when does it happen for us, the church? It already happened. That's what we have now. We have already entered into the new covenant. We share in Israel's blessing, but we got there before they did. How does the Lord put his law in our hearts? How does he write it on our minds? Through the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He leads us and teaches us. And that's what's going to happen to Israel during the millennial reign. But it's already happening to us. We already enter into this new covenant and into this great blessing where he writes his law on our hearts and on our minds and we dwell with him. If so, the corollary must also be true. And that is that God no longer even remembers our sins or our lawless acts. Our sins are so erased, it's as if they never existed. Therefore, there is no reason for us or the Hebrew Christians to continue to offer animal sacrifices for sin. It's pointless, and even worse, if we did it, we would be saying to God, we don't believe in the Holy Spirit, that we don't believe his promise has come. And that's exactly the point the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to the Hebrew Christians. Verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There in verse 20, where it says a new and living way, the word new in the Greek means newly slain. Jesus, the newly slain Lamb of God, opened a way for us to enter the throne room of God. And the way is not just a door, but it's a living way. We literally enter through him. So we do not need to be afraid or tremble when we trustingly draw near to God. For in drawing near to him, we are giving him his heart's desire. At great sacrifice, he has made it possible for us to draw near to him by cleansing us inside and outside. The word for washed there is not baptized, it's bathed. Christ's sacrifice cleansed our physical bodies as well as our inner spirits. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Continuing back in Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 25, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, 
for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good, good deeds. Excuse me. Let us not give up meeting together, as some in the, are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here again is the exhortation to hold on to our hope and be firm in our belief that Christ will come back for us. And he will do everything he promised, that we will enter eternal life and we will be showered with all the promised blessings. It's, we must help each other remain steadfast by meeting together and reminding each other and encouraging each other, especially as we see the signs that the end of the world is approaching. Verse 26 through 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's a tough verse. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the Holy Spirit into our lives, what are we saying to God? Notice it says deliberately sinning. This isn't accidental sins or sins of human weakness, but these are sins where we intentionally and knowingly choose sin. And in doing this, we are despising the great gift of God. We are despising Christ. We are despising the Holy Spirit. If we are under the new covenant, we know the old animal sacrifices are worthless, powerless to cleanse us of sin. If we are under the new covenant, we know we have already been cleansed of sin by Christ's great sacrifice. If we then welcome sin back into our heart and into our lives, if we seek out sin, where will we go to be cleansed after that? There is no other sacrifice available. If we go into the judgment then with such a sin on our souls, the sin basically of unbelief and despising the Holy Spirit and despising Christ, what can we expect other than fire and destruction? Does this mean that such a believer who welcomes sin back into their life will lose their salvation? Will they be eternally damned? We talked about this at length in some of the earlier lessons, and God alone can judge the heart of a man. Certainly, they will lose great rewards and great blessings and great promises. But 1 Corinthians 3 tells us the judgment of works will reveal the truth, and even if all our works are burned up, we will survive, though as through fire. The question becomes whether despising Christ's sacrifice we can cause our names to be removed from the book of life, thus resulting in being thrown into the lake of fire. And that's a much harder question to answer. There's certainly many verses in scripture that emphatically state there's no power on earth or heaven that can snatch us out of God's hand. But can we ourselves choose to walk away from him? Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This verse shows that when we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we are set apart, saved, sealed, kept safe, 
for the day of redemption, the day Jesus returns to claim us as his own. Is it possible for us to break that seal once it's given? Many Christians believe not. Though I sense we still have free will, I can also see it would be very difficult for someone who once knew the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to then reject it. It just doesn't make any sense. For one thing, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in us, even in our weakest and most rebellious moments, right? So is it possible even, you know, for us to reject it once having received the Holy Spirit? Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So there's, you know, another perspective on it and one that you often see taught by Christians is, is basically, and it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of a circular reasoning, you know, it, it, but it, it's basically saying if you truly accept the Holy Spirit in your life, then you have holiness dwelling in you. You are by definition holy. You're not going to accept sin back in your life. You're not going to choose sin. You're making a different choice. And the Holy Spirit is helping you do it and teaching you how to do that. And from that reasoning, you would say, therefore, once saved, always saved. Okay. Um, you can also see that throughout all of that, we still are making choices, you know, and we still have free will. So, you know, I have to leave it to each of you to puzzle that out for yourself. But I think from the perspective of a Christian who is trying truly to walk, it becomes a moot point, right? The point being that, that you cling to the Holy Spirit and continue to choose to reject sin wherever it happens in your life and that you walk totally away from your past sin because God has forgotten it. Hebrews 10, 28 through 31. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those quotes are from Moses' lament in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 32, 21 through 22, and, and several verses there, thereafter up through 39. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. 
I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realms of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. They, Israel, are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand of them? Or two, put ten thousand of them to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? the rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. First, the great sin that angered God so much was the sin of unbelief, the sin of worshiping lesser gods, idols. God's wrath is aroused against Israel, and he will allow Israel's enemies to overrun her. But look at the context in verse 36. His judgment occurs after they have borne the consequences of their sin. It's his judgment that brings mercy and forgiveness. This is a picture of God. The writer of Hebrews is calling to mind to believers who are in danger of rejecting God's great gift. He's saying that in despising Christ's sacrifice, once we've accepted it, in willfully going on with a life of sin, we leave no more sacrifice available to cleanse us in preparation for judgment day. God's wrath is aroused and we will certainly bear the consequences of our sin and those consequences will be terrible yet even then we still belong to God even then when his anger is spent it's it's like when the we've already been punished we've we've already borne the consequences we've been through the fire of his anger when that is done he will judge us and in his judgment he will see our suffering and have compassion on us it's a different way of looking at judgment, isn't it? Hebrews 10, 32 through 36. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The writer of Hebrews begs the Hebrew Christians not to reject Christ's sacrifice by returning to those useless animal sacrifices. He begs them to remember how the Holy Spirit empowered them to overcome all temptations and trials. He begs them not to throw away their rich rewards. Verses 37 and 30 through 39. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
But my righteous one, or the righteous, will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk. And he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah at the same time as Israel was a prophet to the northern kingdom. I'm sorry, Jeremiah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. In his prophecy, Habakkuk records a dialogue with the Lord. It's a very short book. It's kind of in three little stages. And, and in the first part, Habakkuk says, Lord, we are going to hell in a handbasket here. Everybody is evil. There's violence everything, everywhere. And you are doing nothing. And the Lord says, well, actually, I am doing something, and I'm going to show you what it is. And the only reason I haven't told you is because you wouldn't believe me if I told you. But I'm going to tell you now that you're griping at me. And what I'm doing is I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to overrun you. Well, I think Habakkuk was sorry he asked. So so he, he then says, well, why are you going to let the wicked win, Lord? What about the righteous? Are you going to let the righteous be destroyed? And the Lord says, write this down. In fact, write it down like a billboard so that somebody who's just running can read it. Here's the revelation of what will happen at the end time. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. The Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then this is it. It's, it's very cryptic. It says, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. And then the Lord goes on to tell Habakkuk that at the end time, the wicked will be destroyed and will be repaid in full for their wickedness. So in quoting this passage, the writer of Hebrews is saying we can have confidence even though we're surrounded by evil, even though we live in a completely wicked world, even though we see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, even if we are some of those righteous that are suffering, we can be confident that it's only for a little while because in the end time, the righteous will live. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, do not shrink back. And the Greek here for shrink back means cower in fear. Do not cower in the corner in fear. God intends for us to walk boldly in life. But even more so, he intends for us to walk boldly into his presence. He's talking here, the writer of Hebrews, about us not shrinking back from God. Romans 8, 12 through 16. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So if you are a believer, walk in confidence. Draw near to God without fear, for Christ has made the only sacrifice you will ever need. 
Your sins are gone. God doesn't even remember they ever happened. So you let them go. Look up, for your salvation draweth nigh. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is called the faith chapter, sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And it starts with an extremely famous definition of faith. In fact, the only definition of faith in the Bible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance in Greek is a compound word made up of two words. The first part of the compound means under or through. But the second one is very interesting. It's the Greek word histemi. And it is a word that means to abide, to appoint, to continue, to covenant, to establish, to hold up, to stand. So taken together, if you put under or through with that, the words give a flavor of a foundation. Standing under in the sense of a a covenant, of a guarantee. In fact, This word is used in classical Greek in a legal sense to mean a title deed. Faith is the title deed of things hoped for. It is faith is the very visible, tangible evidence of your hope. We think of faith as being invisible, but faith is the visible part of your hope. Faith is what makes you different as a Christian. Because you truly look forward to the millennial kingdom and to the new heaven and the new earth, your actions now are different than they would have been if you had no hope. You make different decisions. You have a different perspective. Your faith shows that you believe God's promises. And it's exactly the same word that was used in Hebrews 1, verse 3, to describe Christ as the very essence of God. In Hebrews 1.3, it said, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That word being is the same word as essence, the same thing that faith is. Faith is the very essence of your hope. It is your hope in the flesh. The word for conviction, where it says faith is the conviction of things not seen, means evidence or proof. Your faith is the proof that you really believe what you say you believe. And from this springboard, the writer of Hebrews proceeds to give some great examples of men and women in the Bible who demonstrated this kind of faith. In each case, you will see the example given of their faith is not what they said. It's what they did. Faith is not real unless it makes a difference in what you do. And that's why the writer of Hebrews introduced this whole section by his quote from Habakkuk at the end of chapter 10, where it said in Habakkuk, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness. It gives us a very vivid picture of two opposites. The first is a puffed up man whose desires are not righteous. The second is a righteous man who lives by faith. The first man is greedy, self-absorbed, stationary, puffed up, sucking 
things towards him. Though he doesn't realize it, he is the very picture of death and dying. The second man, the man of faith, is thin, gaunt, outward directed, and on the move. He is living. He is in action. It reminds me of the great contrast between the priests from Rome who came to basically lay down the law to the Irish and Celtic monks way back in the six, mid-600s and the early 700s. Eight, that's A.D. Magnus Magnuson said, The Celtic monks lived in conspicuous poverty. The Roman monks lived well. The Celtic monks were unworldly. Roman monks were worldly. Celtic bishops practiced humility. Roman bishops paraded pomp. Celtic bishops were ministers of their flocks. Roman bishops were monarchs of their diocese. And they're all Catholics, okay? This is all the same church, but because they had been geographically separated, they had developed different traditions and ways of doing things. They had different haircuts and they had different dates for Easter and things like different calendar kind of things like that. And it was a really bitter time for the Celts and the Irish when the monks from Italy came and won the ear of the king. And a 12th century Irishman wrote, the elders who did God's will at the beginning of time were bare haunched, scurvy, muddy. They were not stout and fat. The men of keen learning who served the king of the sun did not molest boys or women. Their natures were pure. Scanty shirts, clumsy cloaks, hearts weary and piteous, short, rough shocks of hair, and very rough monastic rules. There will come after that the elders of the latter-day world with plunder, with cattle, with miters, with rings, with chessboards. I tell the seed of Adam, the hypocrites will come. They will assume the shape of God, the slippery ones, the robbers. That is the embodiment of what's being talked about by Habakkuk in comparing by the Lord through Habakkuk and comparing the puffed up one with the righteous one who lives by faith. Hebrews 11, 2. I'm going to give you a couple of translations of it, and you may have one, you'll have one or the other pretty much in your Bible. One translation is that by this faith, the elders obtained a good report. Another translation might say, for therein the elders had witness born to them. The Greek, is, the Greek is, is a little vague here. And a lot of translators believe that it should be interpreted such that the elders, the men and women we're about to read about, received a good report card from God for their faith. I prefer the second view. And that is that the elders weren't talking, they were listening that by faith they were able to perceive the testimony and witness of those who had gone before them. And I think that that was the intent of the writer of Hebrews because I think it is an opening parenthesis on this chapter of faith and that you can find the clothing parentheses in, in chapter 12, verse 1. In chapter 12, verse 1, the close says, Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So I think here at the first part of chapter 11, he's saying the elders received the witness of those who went before them. And at the end, he says, therefore, let us listen to the witness of these elders in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. Notice the first words, by faith we understand. Habakkuk told us, by faith we live. This chapter is going to expand on what it means to live by faith. And the first thing we learn is that by faith we gain understanding. By faith, the Holy Spirit is able to open our minds to truly understand that which surrounds us. The word world here, here is eons, meaning all ages through all time. And the word word is not logos that is used to describe Christ, but the Greek here for word means the spoken word. This verse says that by faith we understand that all the ages were spoken into being by God, not just fashioned by him out of existing matter. And this statement was especially directed to the Greek listeners. The, the book of Hebrews was written at a time when Greek philosophers loved to stand around and argue about what God used to make the universe, kind of like scientists stand around and argue about it nowadays. Some believed God made th all things out of water. Others, like Plato, taught that there were three eternal things, God, matter, and ideas, <coughs> and that it took the three of those to create the universe. Aristotle taught that matter was a, had to be eternal because nothing could be made out of nothing. Christianity alone stood in believing that God spoke all things into being out of nothing. Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God, testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. This is another clue to the life of faith, and Abel is the first example we're given. Notice that the life of faith is characterized, characterized by a head bowed in worship. Watch for this as we go through the rest of the examples in this chapter. This is just the first chapter that shows faith begins in an attitude of worship. The story of Cain and Abel is in Genesis 4, verses 2 through 5. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the, of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Well, at first glance, this seems very unfair. Cain was a farmer. Why shouldn't he bring his first fruits? Abel was, you know, raised animals. It seems natural he would bring animals. And most people assume that the problem had to be that Cain must not have brought the best fruits, right? 
That's not, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's entirely possible Cain brought his best fruits. I think the problem was in the statement Cain was making with his, with his sacrifice. Remember when we studied Melchizedek and we found that he was a priest of God a long time before the Levitical priesthood was established? And remember how Abraham recognized Melchizedek was a priest of God? And we reflected on how would Abraham have known that? And the only way would have been if God had told Abraham who Melchizedek was. What is the function of a high priest? To offer gifts and sacrifices to God. And God made it clear to these early people what his will was. Long before the law was given, God taught his people what sacrifices were acceptable to him. How do I know that? Look in Genesis 8, 20 through 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Noah's sacrifice, his burnt offering, was long before the law was given. You think Noah just made that up? No. He was offering the Lord sacrifices he had been taught by the Lord were acceptable. What about Abraham when he offered Isaac in Genesis 22, verse 2? He said, "Now take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That was long before the law. Yet the Lord told Abraham to offer a burnt offering, an animal sacrifice, in this case his only son. And there's records also of Jacob offering sacrifices to the Lord long before the law was given. All of these are animal sacrifices. Why is that important? Look at Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's only through blood that sins can be atoned. Cain's offering of the fruits of the ground was an offering of pride. By refusing to offer an animal sacrifice, Cain was in essence saying, I don't need to be atoned for. He was refusing to humble himself before God. In this light, God's response to Cain makes a lot more sense. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? It's basically the Lord saying, you knew what you were doing. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Abel, on the other hand, believed God's promise of atonement. Abel humbled himself before God and offered the sacrifice God desired. And because of his act of faith, it says in Genesis that he obtained God's approval. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this in 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. What does that mean? Though he's still dead, he still speaks. Genesis 4.10 says, God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This was 
after he had been murdered, right? The life of a saint certainly has a voice. The prayers and sacrifices of a saint are pleasing aroma to God. Their very lives give him pleasure. Remember how delighted God was in Job. That's what got Job in trouble, remember? Because God was just having such a ball watching Job be good, you know? And if the life is in the blood, the blood of a saint must surely have a voice, even when spilled in murder. Abel's single act was to believe in the atonement of God, right? To believe in that sacrifice for sin. He believed in God's offer of atonement. And I think if you take this in context with something a little later in Hebrews, you'll see that Abel, Abel's blood was crying out for some method of salvation. Abel was the first generation after being thrown out of the garden. God gave them the sacrifices as atonement. But there was no salvation like we have through Christ. Abel's blood cried out for atonement. Christ's blood cries out that atonement has been made. And the writer of Hebrews is going to talk compare Abel's blood to Christ's blood a little later on. So we're probably at a good stopping place. Um, we'll pick up next week with the rest of chapter 11, um, where we will go through some rather surprising examples. If you sat during this week and made a list of 10 examples of the ultimate examples of honor roll of faith, out of the Bible, you'd be surprised when you compared your list to the list that the writer of Hebrews came up with.